Welcome to My Fertility Journey, Life Chats with Bianca Bullissian. Hello everyone, welcome, welcome to the show. I hope you're ready for this week's Life Chat. This was a mind-blowing conversation with Denise Jones-Blair. She is a postpartum nurse and a woman that has struggled through infertility for a very long time. She's been through and through the medical system with various doctors and diagnosis. And I'll tell you, she's got stories to tell this girl. Denise is inspiring and one of the most resilient women I've met through this journey. All that plus a great sense of humor. She has not lost that through her hardships. So please sit back and enjoy her touching story of strength and faith. All right. Hello, Denise. Thank you so much for being here with me and for agreeing to share your very inspiring story. Thank you for having me, Bianca. I'm very excited to join in on this journey with you. Yeah, so we've been chatting for, um, I don't even know how long now, it feels like months for sure. Yes, yes. definitely. We, we met on uh, one of those chat forums and I saw your, your journey and you shared a little bit about your struggles and I thought, oh, this, this girl is interesting. I really want to talk with her. And I think there was a few questions or parts of things that we were doing that seemed similar mm-hmm. that we were going through. And um, we started chatting privately and, and here we are now. And I'm so happy to hear more details. And I'm sure the listeners will be so inspired by your strength and because um, you've been through a lot. And Definitely. it's always nice. It's always nice to hear other people's stories to give us strength and hope. And so we can stand together, right? So, yes. so if you don't mind starting um, a little bit about your journey of when like you and your husband decided to try and conceive and then anything else that you want to share to, to tell us like how you got to where you are now. Well, my journey actually started a few years before me and my husband ever met. Um, back in 2000, 2005, I was 19. And no, technically I was 18, getting ready to turn 19. And um, it starts out as a funny, funny story, really, because I had a friend who thought that she might be pregnant. But, you know, when you're young and dumb, you know, your friend's like, oh, my God, I think I might be pregnant, but I don't want to take a test for myself. You know, you all decide to take a test as a group, you know, to give comfort, you you know. So, you know, one friend went first and another friend who thought she might be pregnant, she went second and I went third, you know. So our first friend, of course, like took her test. She's like, all right, my test is negative. So my other friend who originally thought that she was pregnant, she took hers and she was like, all right, woohoo, I'm negative. Yes, you know. So here I go, me not thinking anything of it, being 18. I'm like, all right, let me go in here and take the test. I already know what it's going to say. Well, I'm in there. I take the test. And there's a faint pink line on the test. And I'm standing there like, hmm. <laughs> you know, oh my God. 
looking at the instruction thing, you know, being 18, taking my first pregnancy test, not really know what I'm doing. So, yeah. you know, of course, the minutes kind of ticked by and they're knocking on the bathroom door. Denise, what's taking so long? So I'm like, don't know what's going on. So I open the door, they come in, they're looking at the test. They look at the test, they look at me. I look at the test, I look at them. Oh so we're God. like, you know, because the line was very faint. We're like, maybe it's a faulty test or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my friend calls her sister, who was indeed pregnant at the time. You know, I think she was pregnant with maybe her third child at this point in time. So she's she's an old pro at taking pregnancy tests, you know? Yeah. So we call her over. She comes. She looks at the test. And the first words I heard mouth were like, all right, who's pregnant? <gasps> so um, I made an appointment to go to the doctor. And indeed, I was pregnant. Um, so at that first doctor appointment, all I did was go through the P test to confirm the pregnancy. And the doctor had scheduled, I think, another appointment for maybe two, three weeks or so. You know, this been a long time ago, so I'm kind of fuzzy on the actual details. Mm. So we set up another appointment and, you know, I tried to start like eating right. You know, I didn't have any type of sickness at that point in time. I really wasn't keeping up with my periods because... I had always had very hard periods. Ever since my first period, it has always just been like excruciating, fetal position on the floor, squalling type of pain. And yeah. the doctors had always told me, you know, you just have bad menstrual cramps. There's nothing more to it. There was no testing done, no x-rays, no surgeries, no nothing at that point in time. Yeah. Because like I said, I got my first cycle when I was 11 so at that point in time, back then, you know, doctors really weren't talking about endometriosis or fertility type stuff or reproductive stuff involving women or, or kids, you know? Yes. Yeah. So, just brush it off. The pain, exactly. take the painkiller. Take an ibuprofen. You'll be fine in a couple of days, whatever. So I went to the initial appointment. And after that initial appointment, like I said, I had another appointment with the doctor like two weeks or so later. Well, a friend of mine told me, you might want to change doctors because, you know, we've been hearing that she's not really one to take care of, proper care of her patients. Just try someone else. So I decided to switch doctors. So when I switched doctors, like I said, when I went to my first appointment, I didn't have an estimated due date or anything like that. So when I went to my next appointment with the new doctor, I didn't have any clue how far along I was. You know, I... I had a rough idea about when my last cycle was, but, you know, before we even got to all that, he decided he wanted to see if he could find some fetal heart tones with the monitor. So he put the little monitor on my belly. He's looking for a heartbeat. You know, he doesn't find anything. He said, well, maybe you're not far, far enough along for the fetal heart tones to show up. Let's yeah. do a vaginal ultrasound. So we go into the ultrasound room. I lay on the table, you know, get undressed, however you got to do it, you know, how you got to do for ultrasounds. Yeah. So they proceed to do the ultrasound and they get to the little sack and he, I could, I could tell by the look on his face that something wasn't right. And I remember him looking at me, put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, I'm sorry, but there's no heartbeat. There's no, there's no growth. And to someone who had just a couple of weeks ago found out they were pregnant, was getting used to the idea you know, that was, that was very uh, hard. That was a very hard painful. time for me. Um, I can imagine. No matter I, the surprise, that's always yeah. painful. Yeah, you know, I felt very numb. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't quite understand why. You know, it's like 
you you get this gift, you unwrap it, and you see that it was shipped wrong because you open it and it's broken. It's mm -hmm. broken to pieces. You know, I was just completely devastated. So um, I was told that I would have to go in and have a DNC, dilation and cartilage, where they go in and they scrape everything out. And the doctor at that point in time said, I also want to do a laparoscopic surgeon just to see, get an idea of maybe what went wrong if everything looks okay as far as your organ and your setup and everything. That's interesting. So, that sounds very proactive, unusual, unusually proactive for a yes, doctor. Yeah. Yes. And me, me being an 18-year-old at the time, you know, I didn't know. So I just went with the flow of the doctor. If you can give me answers as to why this happened, help me, yeah. you know? So um couple of days, maybe a week or so later, I went in, had the surgery and everything, got, got all cleaned out. And that's the first time the doctor had, that's the first time I had ever heard of the word endometriosis. So he came back, he was like, you have what we call endometriosis. He had did an ablation where he had burnt some of it out. And I remember him telling me that one part of my colon was actually adhered to my uh, abdominal wall that he could not remove. You know, as to why he couldn't remove it at that point in time, I can't really remember the details. If it was gonna be too complex of a surgery or if it was gonna involve taking part of the colon out, I don't know. So like I said, being at that point, I was like 18. I may, I think I was going on 19. I think I was gonna get ready to turn 19 at that point in time. And I just took his word for it. You know, you have endo, unfortunately there's no cure for it. Um, this could explain some of your abdominal pain that you say that you have with your periods and things of that nature. So I took that diagnosis as what it was. I didn't try to do any type of research on it because when you're young and you hear from the doctor as to what the explanation is, you just take the doctor's word for, for, it, for it. You don't try to research it at that point in time. You just go with what the doctors say and keep yes. it moving. So... Um, I got married when I was 22, 23, you know, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. um, Same here. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, we weren't, you know, actively trying to conceive, but we weren't not trying to conceive. Mm -hmm. So years passed and, you know, I haven't got, I, me and my husband have never had a pregnancy together. And we have been together 12 years now. So I had gone to um, I had gone to the same doctor that I was seeing. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm married. Me and my husband, we want to try to start a family. I'm not getting pregnant. Does it have something to do with the endo? You know, is there something that you can tell me, you know, to help me to conceive what I need to be doing? And, you know, dealing with a diagnosis like that that you don't know anything about is stressful. So the doctors were like, well, you know, Stress can cause you not being able to get pregnant. You need to relax. Let's try to take like some prenatals. Let's try these different pills to see if we can like boost your system and help you conceive. So I took that at face value, tried to do that. Still, something in my heart was like, eh, something's still not quite right. So I decided to try a different doctor. You know, I told this doctor, you know, I have a confirmed diagnosis of endometriosis, but I feel that something isn't right. I'm unable to get pregnant. And once again, you know, there's nothing that was really done. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just trying to tell you, 
well, let's try to take these different type of prenatals um, to see if we can boost your hormones or things like that. Let's try this. And, you know, at some point in time, you feel like your voice isn't being heard when it comes to doctors. Yeah. And, and we, start to, we start to smarten up a little bit as we're older. Yes, you start, to, you start to think like, wait a minute, I'm telling you this, but you're not really hearing me in a way or where you're being proactive to do something about it. Exactly. And were you taking, sorry to interrupt you, were you taking anything for the endometriosis or you no. were just, you were just managing the pain as you always did? Like I said, I've, and had living with it. I've had painful periods ever since I was 11. Yeah. So I've got to the point where if I'm on my cycle or if I'm getting ready to go on my cycle, I know that I need to take something because, you know, doctors aren't prescribing anything. So I got to the point where I'm used to taking 1,500 milligrams of ibuprofen or Tylenol or I'm crying through the worst part or, or I'm just sick and I'm just struggling to get through because that's what I've always done. Yeah. So that was continued to be your normal cycle. Yeah. Yes. Through the whole time. Okay. Yes. So, so you found a new doctor. Yes, and you know, nothing changed. Let's mm. try not to be stressed. Let's try to do timed intercourse around your ovulation, you know. So I'm like, you know what? Let me just take a break from the whole doctor situation. Let's see if my body will just readjust. But like, you know what? We're, we're just going to give you a baby. Well, this isn't the land of unicorns, so that didn't happen. So um, in 2017, I went back to the doctor who had originally did my first laparoscopic surgery. So I went to him. I was like, hey, you know what? I'm still not getting pregnant. Something's going on. I just need something to be done. Please help me. So he was like, all right, let's do a second laparoscopic surgery and see if there's more endo or what's going on. So he goes in, does another surgery takes out some more endometriosis you know let's try to relax let's try to give your body a break try not to be stressed oh my god you know yeah. <laughs> and let's see what happens then so i had this surgery probably i think in february of to that february or march of 2017 in december of 2017 i wound up having a i wound up having two cycles that were like 10 to 11 days apart that's not normal for me. I went to the I went to the emergency room because I'm like, look, something ain't right because my body doesn't do this. And you know, the doctor, the ER doctor, prescribed me this medication. I can't even remember the name of it, but I don't even think they make it for public consumption anymore because when I called the prescription into the pharmacy, a lot of pharmacies didn't even have it. And then the pharmacy they did have, it said it was on back order, but even with my insurance, it was going to cost me 600 and something dollars out of pocket. Wow. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I would just bleed, wait for it to stop. <laughs> I'm good, you know? Yes. So, and I'm thinking to myself, something still isn't right. Now, mind you, being, I'm a nurse at this point in time. You know, I had just graduated nursing school in 2016. This is 2017. So I'm a brand new nurse. You know, I'm very inquisitive. I'm all about, I'm going to ask as many questions as I possibly can. So I went back to the doctor who, doctor's office who had did my surgeries. You know, I had just had one in February of that year. And I didn't see the actual doctor, but I saw a nurse practitioner working in his office. So, you know, my doctor was a male. This nurse practitioner was a female. And I'm telling her, like, look, 
I got X, Y, and Z going on. It's not normal. Something's not right. I need I need something to be done, another look, try to figure out what's going on with my body because I feel, I know in my spirit that something isn't right. So she was like, okay, I'm going to talk to the doctor about doing an HSG scan, which basically the HSG scan is a scan where they put the speculum into the vagina and then they shoot dye into your ovaries and uterus to see how they flow. So I'm like, okay, let's do that. She was like, if it comes back normal, then we'll go from there. If it comes back abnormal, we might need to go in for another surgery to see what's going on. I'm like, okay, cool. I went in, had that scan done. That scan is the most painful thing to go through. Yeah, I'm telling you. I've it's heard. Like, I didn't get to do this one. Um, hopefully I won't need it, but it's I hopefully heard if you do, if you do go through it, I would recommend taking something for pain about 30, 45 minutes before you go in, mm-hmm. you know. Because it can be very uncomfortable. I've heard other people say how uncomfortable it is. I've heard a few people that said that they didn't have a big issue with a lot of discomfort. You know, everybody's different. Yeah. So mine was very, very painful, you know. But I had it done and I was actually out of town working when I got a phone call from the doctor's office telling me that something was abnormal with the skin and then they wanted me to come in and do a consultation for a surgery. I got the call on a Monday and they wanted to do surgery on that Friday. I was going to work that Friday. So I had to call my boss and let my boss know like, look, I just got a call from the doctor. They're thinking emergency surgery, you know, I'm going to need to be off. And she was cool with that. She was nice about it. And um, I went in for the surgery. And I remember coming out of anesthesia and I remember hearing bits of, because, you know, when you're coming out of anesthesia, you know, your mind's not completely there. You're like in a fog. So I caught bits and pieces of words like missing or not there. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is what, what is going on? And my husband, being a man, not having any medical knowledge, he didn't know how to explain anything to me. So I had to wait for my follow up a week later. Oh my God. So, so nerve wracking. I know. I know. I know. So I go to my follow up and I remember the doctor coming in and there's a look on his face to where like he's almost kind of like in disbelief almost. And so I remember him pulling up the stool, sitting next to me. He puts his hand on my knee and he was like, um, Denise, have you ever heard of a condition called unicornate uterus? And I'm like, not that I can recall. Because in nursing school, they go over uterine abnormalities, but it's a very small section in the nursing manual. Very small. It's not something that they spend a lot of time teaching about. Because there's so many different things that can go on with the reproductive system. That's interesting. So, it, it, it reflects the the medical system as a whole, right? It is. How women's health and reproductive health, sexual health is just so overlooked. On the back burner, seriously. Because it's one of my bad. biggest one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to the healthcare system is that women are the ones that have to carry the kids. We are the one that bring the kids in the, in the world and continue the population. However, 
reproductive abnormalities is not a big focus when it comes to reproductive health and care. Like insurance doesn't cover anything when it comes to infertility as far as women. However, insurance covers treatment and medications for men with erectile dysfunction. Oh, don't even get me started on that. That's what happens to our insurance. You You mean to tell me that you'll treat a penis that can't get up, but you won't treat that uterus that can't produce and, and bring the kids into the world that carries the kids into the world? Because these people, they make? Yeah, because no, there would be no people. Literally, exactly. no people Until in the world. Until you can create something that can incubate a baby for nine months and bring it out healthy, you need us women and our organs. I'm sorry, we're one half. So why doesn't our half get treated like the men? It does not. You no, know, but you got to think, who are the ones making all the rules in the insurance companies, the males? Exactly. So that's a different topic for another day. Oh my God, a whole other podcast. I have like, I'm fired up. Okay. So, let me back so Continuing, yes. So, he's telling me um, about the unicorn at uterus. Basically, and I'm going to tell you, this is a man, male doctor who I've been dealing with. At this point in time, I'm, I'm almost 30 at this point in time, if not already 30, okay? So I've been dealing with this doctor since I was 18. Wow. Mind you being, he's done not one, not two, but this is the third laparoscopic surgery he has done on me, okay? So you mean to tell me, First, let me say where a unicornate uterus is. A unicornate uterus is basically where a female, a female's uterus is only half. You only have one side, either the left or the right, and you're gonna possibly be missing a fallopian tube. You're born that way. It's nothing that happens while you're growing up. One side don't shrink and shrivel back in. You ain't got one half. You're missing it. It, okay. it wasn't it wasn't created. Okay. Because with a female um, embryo or fetus, you have two tubes, the Merlin tubes, they're supposed to come together and they create the uterus, ovaries, as well as the urinary system. There's two tubes that come together that create all of that. Well, in my case, when I was a fetus, these two tubes came together, but they didn't properly develop. One side developed and the other didn't. So I only have the left side of my uterus, my left fallopian tube, but I have both ovaries. My right ovary is just floating out there, not connected to anything. Okay. So the doctor tells me, well, while I was in there, it looked like your uterus was a little wide. So let's do an ultrasound. Okay, mind you, we did an ultrasound back in 2005 that discovered that my fetus wasn't growing, that my baby wasn't growing. So we do an ultrasound. At the follow-up after the third surgery, okay, come to find out I have what we call an ectopic or pelvic kidney. My left kidney sits down by my bladder in my pelvic cavity, okay, because your kidneys are supposed to sit up by your ribs, you know. My left kidney doesn't sit up there which is an abnormality in itself because usually when with the unicornate uterus, whichever side of the uterus is missing, 
That's usually where you're either missing a kidney or have a pelvic kidney. Mine is opposite. I have my left side of, of my uterus and fallopian tube. My right kidney sits in the right spot, but it's my left kidney that doesn't sit where it's supposed interesting, to sit. Interesting, interesting. And it's so interesting, like biology, anatomically wise, how kidneys, all the urinary uh, organs, I don't know the right terminology, and then the reproductive system is so connected, right? And and how, you know, that whole all the connections, it, it's just so interesting. And mm-hmm. I find... Again, going back to the medical system that fails us so much, unfortunately, and so often that it does amazing things, um, of course, but it's especially for us women, it, it, make, it fails to make these connections. Do you agree? I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's a shame that a lot of times when women are dealing with reproductive issues and pain and they seek help to help with the pain or to figure out what's causing the pain, a lot of times we're looked at as drug seekers and that's not the case. Yeah. And a lot of times they don't want to prescribe anything. They just refer you back to your OBGYN and be like, that's a reproductive issue. You need to go see your reproductive doctor. And then if you're re- and then if your OBGYN feels like you're too complex or complicated, then they're just gonna refer you to an endocrinologist or someone that deals with infertility as far as you know IVF or IUI or artificial insemination and things of that nature. Well, that's all cool and dandy, but if you don't get down to the root problem as to why so many women are suffering from these conditions of the reproductive system and you're in an area of medicine based on the reproductive system, why are you in that area of medicine if you're just going to brush women off? Yeah, so frustrating. So frustrating. it boggles my mind. Yeah, me too. And it's you being to in women, the system, it must be extra frustrating for you. <laughs> you know, I currently work as a postpartum pediatric nurse, meaning that I'm taking care of the moms after they have their babies which is like a stab to my heart every time I go to work. Because, you know, a lot of times I'm getting asked by the moms, you know, do you have any children? I'm like, no, not yet. And I'm like, just shoot me. But your baby is gorgeous. You know, let me help you. (laughs) (laughs) Let me help you and your beautiful baby that you Yeah, you know, let's steer the conversation away from me. And let me just stare at your beautiful baby for a moment because there's a possibility I'm not going to be able to experience this for my So let me spoil yours for 12 hours a day, you know? Yes. Let me be a part of that. Yeah. But um, postpartum and labor delivery and everything surrounding pregnancy and birth, I've always saw myself as like a labor delivery nurse, even before I even got accepted to nursing school and everything. I've always wanted to deal with mom's, baby's pregnancy. That's always been my forte. Well, when I first graduated nursing school, I actually spent two years working ER. So I would see women come in, complain of abdominal pain, bleeding, and me being a nurse suffering, I felt their pain. But me being a nurse, I already know these ER doctors, they can't do nothing for you. They're not going to prescribe you no narcotics. They might send you for a CT scan. If they don't see nothing on the CT scan, they're going to refer you right back to your OBGYN. And it hurts me because being an ER nurse and knowing for a fact, Pooh, you wasting your time coming in here. 
for this because they ain't going to do nothing for you. That hurts. And then you have the people on the other side who aren't in the medical field who are bashing us ER nurses and staff because our hands are literally tied. There's nothing that they can do. There's this big opioid crisis over the last few years where so many doctors were losing their licenses for writing narcotic prescriptions. So a lot of doctors now are afraid to write these prescriptions because even though all women who deal with reproductive problems aren't drug seekers, you have a lot of people that are. Yeah. So it's a catch-22. Yeah. You don't want to prescribe narcotics to the ones that sink just pain pills, but you, you don't want to step out of bounds and prescribe them to the people that need them because you're afraid to lose your license. You're afraid to get in trouble. You're afraid for them to come to you and be like, why are you writing this? Well, why'd you do this? Because you got to answer to somebody at the end of the day. And doctors and nurses and specialists, I know they work very hard for their license. Because I work very hard for mine. I get it. So I know both sides of the coin. You know? And I remember I would get on some of those chats for the endometriosis that we would, the groups that we would be in. And I would look at them just bashing the ER. And I'm like, oh, please don't do that. Some of us out here do care, but we literally... Cannot do anything. Yeah. Our hands are literally tied. Yeah, and, you know, system it is complex. It's so it, complex. It really is. And I remember, you know, I suffer from endometriosis as well, you know, and I still have to work. So there's been times where I've been in the middle of a bad flare-up, can barely walk, and I still got to go to work. You know, you can, you can see the fatigue and the pain etched all over my face, but I still got to go in here and hit this clock and take care of these other people. And I need a woo saw, breathe, or get a heating pad or ice pack in between in between patient care. You know, I've had to do that. Yeah. But like I said, I was an ER nurse for two years before I finally decided that I needed to change and I needed to go where my heart was. Yeah. So I was you able to get what? a job. I, in I find. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that you got to that you got to do that. And as much as it's painful, it's really what you love to do, right? It is. But it's, it's again, because the system is so complex. And again, we could go on and on about this for forever, I'm sure. Yes. It's like we have to, as, um, as a community, I find, we have to, and as citizens that, you know, we have to vote, we have to pay attention to the legislation, and we have to um, advocate and um, like create as much as we can, you know, you don't have to go to the picket line for hours every single time, everyone can do their jobs in a different way, but we have to pay more attention to these things, instead of just going to the clinic and going to the hospital coming back and then trashing the the nurses and the doctors, right? Mm -hmm. um, like you said, you know, there's a good and the bad um, of the professionals in all profession there is that but we have to look at the bigger picture and what mm. can we do to change the education because again the people that are there and they're tied up by the system like you said with your hands tied you, you can't do anything you only be able to do something if the system slowly changes and it's slow changes we know our generation probably won't see it but you know that's we're the ones now that have to do the fighting mm -hmm. and, and pay attention to these things. And I think as a community, we need to do better. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah. And one thing that I have grown to learn through my experiences is that women need to advocate for themselves. Absolutely. We need to stop taking with doctors and specialists say at face value and do our research. You know, learn what your symptoms are. 
learn what the symptoms of other conditions that can mimic what you're going through are. Like a lot of times people have endometriosis and doctors will write it off as something like Crohn's or IBS because of the fatigue, because of the pain, because some people, some women experience either diarrhea or constipation with endo. But you got to think with endometriosis, endo can grow, endo can actually grow anywhere in the body. You know, it can be on the bowels, it can be in the rectum, it can be on the bladder. Uh, there's been cases where it's been found in the lungs and even the brain, knees, fingers, you know, for something that's that's not very well known, but it can be found in different places, you would think there would be more research dedicated to it, you more knowledge think. dedicated to it. But unfortunately, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah, I met I met someone that was sharing that when she was a teen, she had her period and then she had bleeding out of the side of her eye. Mm. And that was endometriosis. And it actually became like a scar. And mm-hmm. I think that that doesn't happen to her anymore. But can you imagine how scary and how like embarrassing as well? Like every time you're bleeding and then you're bleeding out of your eye, you're in school, you don't know what to do. Like it's, and, and these things are just brushed and off. And the first thing a person going to say is, oh my God, you're contagious. What is that? Yeah, there's that still to deal with. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. So if we go back, so you, so when you found out about your... So when I found out about the unicornate uterus and the pelvic kidney, my first thought was, doctor, how was this missed previously? You know, this is the third surgery in the first, because I got all my surgical papers, you know, because after this, he was like, you know, I don't feel there's anything more that I can do. I'm going to refer you to a reproductive specialist. So I got copies of all my medical paperwork. And I'm reading through my surgical reports, and my surgical reports are saying back from 2005, uterus intact, fallopian tubes pressing, ovaries good. First surgery, everything looks good. Second surgery, uterus intact, everything looks good, fallopian tubes intact. Third surgery, half the uterus missing and one fallopian tube's gone. How is that, Doc? Make 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 it make sense. Oh my how goodness. does someone go from having everything in place like it's supposed to be to not having half of what's supposed to be there? Yeah. So that that tells me that you went in and you didn't do what you were supposed to be did because if you did, you would have caught it the first time. And then let's go back to 2005 when we did that vaginal ultrasound. How the hell did we miss a pelvic kitten? I know. Unbelievable. Flabric, I mean, mine completely belong. So that situation really opened my eyes to like, you can't trust what people say. If you can't trust what a doctor who has been taking care of you for at least the last 15 years of your life has been telling you, who can you trust with your care besides yourself? So you know, I went and saw the reproductive specialist and they're talking about, you know, let's do IVF or let's try this or that. You know, they're telling me the cost. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. So um, one, of the, the, one of the reproductive specialists that I did see, there is this process that is like half the cost of IVF where basically, you know, the biggest cost of IVF is the laboratory or where they mix the sperm and the egg and incubate and all that. 
Well, there's this other process called InvoCell where they actually take the sperm, take the egg, and mix it in this little cylinder. And then they take that cylinder and put it in the vagina and put like a little cup up, like a little diaphragm to hold it in place and basically use your body as an incubator. No way. I've never heard of that. Yes. That is interesting. So your body is basically the incubator that takes the lab cost out of it. You know, so as far as the process, like your body is the incubator to help the cells grow. And then I think after five or six days, they have you come back in, they remove that. They see which cells are good or bad and they place the good ones in and basically see if they will take, if they will implant and start to grow. You know, you're on medicine as, pro as far as like progesterone, you're doing injections, trying to prepare your body. It's all a time process, just like IVF, but it just takes the actual lab work out. You know, yeah. that is something that I have considered trying. Okay. But just like IVF, it's not 100% guaranteed to work. And it's still not cheap. So it's still a and gamble. It's still not cheap. An you know, it's still, it's still an expensive gamble because... IVF, we've already said, is like $20,000 per cycle, not including meds. With InvoCell, I think your cost is going to be approximately six to seven grand. Okay. Which is significantly cheaper, but if that process doesn't take the first time, that's still money on top of money, on yes. top of money, on top of, on top of emotional trauma, you yes. know, versus IUI, which is about one to $2,000 per round. You know, each doctor and system is different as far as how their infertility treatments would work. Yeah, I remember when we started and we did IUI a couple months, um, that was about a thousand, maybe a bit more with the meds a month. And I remember that putting us back like that was a while ago, uh, like uh, financially, you know? Right. And so everyone's in a different situation, but even a thousand, two thousand dollars can really affect you. And, and, and then not having a baby after that is like you said, it's, a, it's really a trauma. It really exactly. And you got to think back to my situation. You got to think this in a regular situation, you have, you have your two ovaries. One ovary is typically more dominant than the other which means it more likely releases eggs more regularly than the other ovary does. Well, in my situation, if my right ovary is the dominant one, there's no tube there to carry it to the uterus. So that egg has nowhere to go. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you something that the reproductive doctor told me, and I'm still in my nursing brain trying to figure out how this can work, okay? Mm -hmm. So the reproductive doctor told me that even though I'm missing a tube, the I'm trying to figure out how to word this without misquoting her, but basically the fallopian tube isn't actually connected to the ovary. It has these little fingers at the mm -hmm. end that kind of grab the egg and whatever. Now, what was told to me, and I don't know how accurate it is because I'm not at a doctor's level, and I haven't done a whole bunch of research, but what was told to me was that the, the tube can actually go over and grab eggs from the other side, which I'm still trying to figure that out. Because my thing about it is a fallopian tube is only so long, so big. So yeah. if my ovary is somewhere over here floating, 
<laughs> is it even possible that my fallopian tube is even long enough to grab something? To grab on the other side. You know, make it make sense. Hmm. You know, and like I said, I would I would love to try and give IUI a chance. But going back to my situation, if I'm a, if I'm ovulating more from my right side, IUI is not going to work. I need to be ovulating from my left side in order to give this a shot to work. Yeah. If I do IUI. And they say that there's a chance that every every month or so, you know, the ovul the ovulation switches sides. Yeah. Yeah. But is that a chance you really want to take? I know. In my condition where you already have a limited supply of eggs. Yeah, because you have a low um ovarian reserve as well on top right. of everything. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, so that's what, sort of where you're standing now in between those two options. Yeah, the because, and then the, I, the, that different approach to IVF is another. Yes, and like I said, you know, that was surgery that I had in, okay, I had it in 18, and I had my third surgery, they found everything out. I had my second surgery in 17, I had my third surgery that found the um, birth defect of the uterus in 2018. And then um, I actually just had another surgery back here in May of 2020. And this surgery is with a different specialist. Because like I said, my cases, my surgical cases have so much conflicted information. You know, the doctors was reading and they were like, huh? Mm, they was yeah. like, how was it missed in these and found here? And I'm thinking to myself, your guess is as good as mine, you know? <laughs> so when you're reading a doctor's surgical report and you really don't trust it, you want to go in and have a look for yourself. So when they went in, yes, there's a pelvic kidney. Yes, you have a unicornate uterus. But what wasn't told you was that your uh, reproductive system doesn't sit in the cul-de-sac where it's supposed to be is a little bit higher than what it's supposed to be, which is something that I was never told previously. It's like you're getting a little bit of a, like a shitty surprise with every single surgery that you have. It's like, just tell me everything already. Yeah. Right. Co correct. And I think, and then mm -hmm. mind you being at this point in time before this last surgery, it, I didn't know about, you know, the tools that they use for IVF. So after this last surgery, because for this last surgery, I initially was seeing a female doctor, but her male counterpart was the one that actually did the surgery. The female doctor was telling me that IVF with my egg count, IVF would be my best, if not only option. Well, with him going in doing the surgery and noticing that my organs don't sit where they're supposed to be, he was like, it's a possibility IVF won't even work for you because the tools that we use may not be long enough to reach where they need to go. So IUI, which previously was not an option because of my egg count, seems to now be your biggest chance. So it's like, do I try IVF and pay all that money that I ain't even got for a process that might not even work because the tools might not stretch? Or do I go with a process that drains my egg count even more and still isn't guaranteed to work? 
And then with the Envo cell situation, you you got to remember they would still need the tools that they would use in IVF to gather the eggs. Yes. So if the tools don't reach, the Envo cell might not even be an option. Okay. Because you can't reach the eggs. Okay, these people need to work on their tool options. Let's just say that. Let's just stretch out these tools. Seriously. I mean... Well, how are you coping is just a, feels like a stupid question right now. But between like you and your husband through these years as well, because um, the poor guy, we left him out. How are you guys doing? You guys are beautiful. The two of Thank you, like you. I see pictures on your Facebook. Yes. And you guys are, I know through all the hardships, you still are so strong together and you look happy. I know social media is dumb in that way you know yeah. but but you guys like the two of you look really sweet together so yes he has always been when I say I looked up in the husband department I truly did he completes me he he where I fall short he is strong and vice versa he has always been so supportive of everything I want to do he's like whatever you want to do we can do that and you know as a woman, when you feel that you can't do the simple thing and give your and produce, reproduce and expand your family, that's a hard blow because you start to feel insignificant. You start to feel inadequate. You start to feel that you don't deserve to be happy because you can't do the simple thing as far as conceive, which has gone back to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve or whatever religion you decide to believe in. A woman was born to reproduce. Because if we weren't born to reproduce, we wouldn't have the reproductive organs to do that. So you start to feel like you don't measure up. You start to build, beat yourself up for something that's not even your fault. Because it's not your fault you were born that way. It's not your fault that you were born with a condition or developed a condition that changes you yeah. or affects your, your well-being. And there's been plenty of times where I've cried and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I've even gone to the point of I've cried and I'm like, I wouldn't blame you if you left me, if you divorced me and found somebody who could give you something that I obviously can't. And when I get into that, that frame of mind and mood, he'd be like, I'm so mad at you. He'd be like, stop it. Stop. I'm not going to leave you. There are other options. We can adopt. We can do this. We can do that. But being a woman, there's nothing like seeing a little version of yourself. And everybody talks about, oh, you can always do donor eggs. Those donor eggs aren't your eggs. Yeah. That child will never be your child. It's you know? Different. Yeah, it's different. It doesn't share your blood. You know what I'm saying? And I lost my dad when I was 19. I lost my mom when I was 23. You know, I'm the only child by my mom. I have siblings on my dad's side. But I, when I wouldn't give, I would give. I would give anything to have a mini version of myself. As crazy as that might seem, because Lord knows I was a hellion in my younger days and I put my mom through a lot of stuff. But I always vision myself having a little girl that looks just like me because I look just like my mama that got my ways. Yeah. And I know there's a lot for me to ask of the Lord because Lord knows I could be a handful at times, but that's what I see. And when people broach the conversation of, well, you could adopt or you could try doing a, a surrogate. What about me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stick to the topic, people. What about me? Yeah. And 
You know, that's hard for people who have children, who haven't suffered from infertility to fathom. Because let's not get it twisted. There are a lot of women that deal with and suffer from endometriosis that have kids. There are women who I've researched and following groups that have unicornate uterus that have kids. They're, because they have kids and sometimes women with unicornate uterus don't find out until after they have a C-section. Wow. They go in and they have surgery and they find out that, you know what I'm saying, they have unicornate uterus because the uterus stretches so much. Because you got to think, there's some women that have five, six babies at a time. So the uterus has that ability to stretch. But a lot of times, you know, women will go into like premature labor. There's an increased risk of miscarriage. You know, there's a there's either uterine growth restriction, which means the baby might be on a smaller side as far as, as, far as birth weight. You know, there's a lot of different factors that play into it. So it's not like pregnancy and carrying a baby isn't possible, but when you're in that moment, it feels impossible. Yes, it does. Our battle and struggle isn't exactly the same as everybody else. We might suffer from the same conditions, but our journeys are different. Yeah, absolutely. And we all have to find our, our way and, and whatever solution fits for us. And, and you know, some people don't mean to cut you off, but some people manage their condition through diet, through exercise, through acupuncture, different things. Different things work for different people. What works for one person might not work for everybody else. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we see this all the time, right? I'm a big advocate for acupuncture. I just talk about it because it works for me. But like I've heard so many women saying, you know, acupuncture is horrible. Acupuncture didn't fit for me in the beginning mm -hmm. because I had a needle phobia. I'm happy I overcame that. But the like the stress and anxiety of going to an acupuncture appointment was like counterproductive for me. And then the guilt of like not being able to do it or, you know, having to drag my feet there. All of right. that was just so horrible. And then I went back and now I'm in a different situation, but they, you know, everyone is so different. People that change their diet thinking, oh, I'll go vegan or vegetarian or I'll, I'll eat more meat or I'll eat more of whatever. And, and it gets better, it gets worse. And it's so different for everyone. So right. I think it's trying different things. Did you try anything or are you trying anything physically or mentally on those lines that, that you feel help you? Honestly, I've been doing this battle for so long. I haven't tried, you know, changing my diet because I'm unfortunate. Unfortunately, I'm the type of person that likes to eat. I love <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you the real deal. I yeah. love my meats. Yes. I love steak. Yeah. I love I love shrimp. You know, I am a human version of a carnivore. I love my meats. Love my meats. I like some vegetables. You know, I like my broccoli, but they gotta have cheese. I'm not very healthy as far as diet, you know, never have been. But if someone was to tell me, Denise, if you change your diet today and stick to it, you will get pregnant. I would change my diet. But I work in the healthcare field. I see plenty women, don't take this personally if you on the obese side. 
It is what it is. But I see plenty of obese women that get pregnant, have multiple kids. So that tells me that diet can't particularly play as big a role as people say it does in being able to reproduce. It might play a factor, part of it on a bigger scale, but that alone might not change it. But you've got to understand and look at the different aspects of your condition versus everybody else's condition. So like I said, with me, it's just not the endometriosis. It's the unicorn at uterus. It's the low egg count. Different things play a role. Yeah, changing my diet might help. But yeah. is it really gonna make that big of a difference? I think, yeah. If I think if we all, if we had a guarantee of anything, I think at this point we would do pretty much anything. anything. Yes. Yeah. Apart from anything criminal, I think that's where yeah. I draw the line. <laughs> but anything else. But there's no, there is no guarantee. There is nothing in this yeah. journey that is a guarantee. And then going back to the whole acupuncture thing, you also got to think about the availability of acupuncture mm. because I live in rural Mississippi and, you know, some places might not even have people that practice acupuncture simply because it's not a big need in the area. Yes. And let alone someone that is fertility um, specialist doing acupuncture that because mm-hmm. that's really what you would need. So yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's it's hard sometimes to navigate these um, conversations because it does it does get a little intense sometimes. And it's like okay, let's all backtrack a bit. You know, everyone is on a is on a different situation. Like you said, even though we have similar um, conditions. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about like how have you changed as a person I know your journey with all this like you said you know started with that pregnancy and then a miscarriage when you were 18 to 19 and then now um, over 30 how do you feel yourself as you know as a person in the world how has that changed how you view yourself how you view your world how it changed your relationship to your husband As far as my view on the world, I feel that women are not taken as seriously as they should be with with these type of reproductive issues and conditions. It's really put on the back burner. It's really viewed as being taboo almost to talk about it. Um, I feel that I have become more outspoken as far as being an advocate for myself when I do go to the doctor. I don't take what they say to me at face value. Yes, you're a doctor, but I also work in the medical field. I'm, I'm the one at the bedside with these patients, you know, so I find myself asking more questions. And a lot of times when I get to ask them questions, they're looking at me and they're like, I didn't expect you to just, you know, oh, that's good. All I expected you to go with the flow and I'm not, I'm no longer a go with the flow type of person. If you tell me something, I want you to be able to back it up with research. Tell me where I can find this, where I can look more into it. You know, I find myself wanting and praying and hoping that someone somewhere would be like, we need to look more into this. Um, Mississippi was actually supposed to have their first ever endometriosis walk in March. However, that got canceled due to COVID-19. And COVID-19 has played a major role in being able to go to the doctor. It has changed in how we're being treated. Because a lot of times, unless it's a serious condition, the doctors don't want to do telehealth. You know, they're not wanting to do like face-to-face type contact with just basic things, you know. And... I'm just saddened that um, 
women as far as reproductive health aren't looked at as seriously as some other conditions might be, you know? And it's, where do we draw the line? Where where do we start to think that the value of women should be more? Yeah. You know, and I honestly, I don't have, I try my, I still try to this day not to beat myself up, think that I'm less of a woman or less of a person or that I did something wrong in in my life or in my past life that would make me deserve to be in the position that I am. Because a lot of time it's really hard not to place the blame on yourself. Um, so I just try to go day by day and be the best person that I can be. As far as when I go to work, I try to take care of my patients the best way I can. I try to treat them all like family. Um, I don't do much more than work and go come home. So, you know, that's another way that it affected me because I think I used to be a whole lot more outgoing and involved with my family and friends before all this came about. And right now I noticed that I have become more withdrawn. I like my personal me time. You know, I mm-hmm. like to be my, by myself and just not even reflect, but just be surrounded in, in a place where I find comfort. Yes. You know, because unless you go through what I've gone through, you can't understand. You can't sympathize with me. You can show me empathy, but you can't sympathize. You know, you can offer suggestions, but the same suggestions you're offering me, I've already thought about. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times people try to find, people try to give you comfort by offering their suggestions or their opinions. And you really don't want to hear that. let me vent let me say what I gotta do hug me hold my hand but just let me be yeah it's a learning experience isn't it to to give yourself time I think I find we we grow up trying to like do stuff right oh I have free time oh I'm gonna call a friend oh I'm gonna hang out with so-and-so and I think this journey in itself sort of gets us to reflect within and try to deal with like you said you know this blame and this guilt that ultimately we know is not our fault and there's no place for this blame and and guilt but as we manage that we realize you know what I like to be by myself or if I don't like to be by myself I need to address that and I enjoy my me time and maybe you know hanging out with friends and eventually maybe hearing something that's upsetting not the best thing for me now so I think we learn how to to give us ourselves a little bit more love than than if we weren't going through something like this that's so personal and so um so sort of female it has a feminine energy right to that and that we need Mm -hmm. to nurture learn how to nurture right i completely agree and you know to women who have spouses we want our we want our male counterpoints to understand and feel what we're feeling but we got to realize men are not built like that a lot of men are not emotional creatures. They they they'll say things that they, it goes from their brain to their mouth. There's no thought between the brain, the ears, and the lips when it comes out. And us women, we are emotional. We will take what you say and flip it a thousand different ways. And you might not even mean to like that, but that's how we gonna take it because we are emotional. We analyze every little bitty thing. And our men might call us crazy or might say that we're taking it the wrong way or we're overreacting. But that's us. Let us vent the way we know how. If you don't understand, just sit there and be like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Just sit there and nod. Offer a hug. Offer to take us out to dinner. We like to eat. 
best advice because even when I'm sad best believe I'm not going to turn down a meal if yeah. I turn down a meal take me to the hospital because I'm about to die they just they just real yes. I can be mad at you if you volunteer to take me out to dinner as long as I know you're not going to be the one fixing my food I'm going to go I might drive my own vehicle to get there but I'll go eat and then you're going to pay I'm there just tell me what time to be there yeah. You know, do you have time, the? Do you guys have these conversations? You and your husband, like, are you open like that? Like, if I'm mad or if I'm emotional, you just like be in your place and take I, me for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Um. My husband is like is a typical male. He's not very emotional. Mm. But if he sees that like I'm really struggling, he will try to be there. But he's the type. He's going to go in the other room and give me space and just let me be. Okay. And when I calm down and I come back to myself, I'll go in there and I try to cut up next to him or seek his attention. But until then, he leaves me be. Because yeah. when we first got together, he was the type of man, if I'm sleeping, he's going to wake me up. Well, he's learned over the years not to do that. He don't care if I'm late for work. He gonna If I'm asleep, he's not going to touch me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Don't mess it's with just... your sleep. Don't mess with your food. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. To wrap it up, would you um, like to share with our listeners from this whole journey that you've been through, all these um, hardships that I'm sure made you um, grow a lot, but there, there is a lot of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Anything that you have learned from anyone in your life, like a mentor, a book, a member of your family, anyone that inspires you that you could share a little bit to also inspire our listeners? Well, my mom, going back to her, she was my biggest influence in my life. Growing up wasn't easy. She had a lot of health issues herself. Um, My mom actually had me one month after she turned 40. So she she wasn't young, you know, when she had me. And over the years, you know, growing up with her, she was a wonderful woman, you know. Um, like I said, she had me a month after she turned 40. She was a cook, you know, she had an accident at work where she had a uh, high grease spilt on her. She was very, I wouldn't say high maintenance, but she was very well kept as far as her appearance, her hair, her nails and stuff. And, you know, she got burnt from the knees down to both legs, second and third degree burn. She overcame that. Then she got diagnosed with breast cancer. She went through some mental type issues. She had a double mastectomy done. You know, she went through different things as far as her health. And I would see her fall into depression, go through these mental issues. But at the same time, she always expressed her love for me. Even when she was at her lowest, I always knew that I was loved. I might not have understood being a child what she was going through, but I always knew that she loved me and she would do anything for me. Regardless if she was sick or what, she always tried her best to make sure that I knew that I was loved, that I was cared for, that I was valued. So growing up, seeing her go through everything that she went through, I was the one taking care of her. So that's where I got my love of nursing from, taking care of her. I also had a cousin who I came up around. I watched her struggle to take care of four kids and go to work and go through nursing school and I always if something that's always been in my heart to be a nurse to go through nursing taking care of my mom was my biggest thing losing her I had always felt like I was supposed to be doing more in life 
So when I was able to go to nursing school, you know, I always used to have these conversations with myself. I'd be like, God, if it's meant for me to go to nursing school, show me a sign. And, you know, I could be a little stubborn, a little hard-headed. So if you're going to show me a sign, make it something that I can't dismiss, you know. So he showed me the signs that I needed to see. I was able to go through nursing school. You know, I got a scholarship to go through nursing school. I got nursing honors. I did all these great things as far as nursing. I went back to school and got my bachelor's. I recently was awarded with the Daisy Award, which awards nurses for uh, their excellence in nursing. And everything that that I've dedicated my, thank you. Everything I've dedicated my career to has been in honor of my mom to pay homage to her because she was a great woman. If I could be half the woman that she was, that's saying something. And, you know, witnessing everything that she went through, there was always this Bible verse that got to me that I always kind of reflected to um, Hebrews 11. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Even though you don't see the possibilities of what could be, you still have to have some type of hope that what you want will come to be. That's because faith without work is dead. You got to be able to put in the work. You got to be able to put in the belief that things will fall in your or in in the way that you want them to. What we want in our time might not be on our time. It might be a bigger thing than us. It might not be our time to be parents. There might be lessons that we still need to learn. Who's to say that? six months a year or whatever we won't get the miracles that we search for we just got to try to be patient and have some sibilance of hope of faith that what we want will come to be i've i've accomplished everything basically that i wanted to have i don't have a big house on the hill i've never been very materialistic you know but i always said i wanted to be a nurse it took me some time to get there you know i graduated nursing school i think 11 days before I turned 30. Who's to say that it might take me a little more time to become a mom? I just got to try to have hope and faith that things will work out, not only for me, but for you and for everybody else that is going through these battles. Yeah. And there is also a book that I did find a few years ago. It was written by a um, endometriosis specialist. It's called the doctor will see you now by Tamir second. Yeah, we'll ta- we'll um, put that on the notes. Yes, but yeah, um, so people can can look for it. It was written by a special uh, a man who specializes in endometriosis and the treatment of endometriosis. It's very insightful as far as how endometriosis um, is diagnosed. How many women have been misdiagnosed when it comes. To treatment when it comes to different things that could be going on with their body. I found it very enlightening because it it opened my eyes and made me ask more questions. It gave me insight as to what questions I need to be asking as far as treatment and things of that nature when I go to the doctor. Like he says in his book, a lot of doctors treat endometriosis with ablation, which basically is where they cauterize and burn the endo out. Well, in his opinion and in his work, he does excision surgery where you yeah. actually cut out the endometriosis from the base. Because I agree, if you don't cut something out for, from the base, from the root, it still has opportunity to grow. Yeah. 
Exactly. And the scar tissue of all the, the abrasion will, will still cause issues too, right? Yeah, exactly. That's beautiful. Thanks for your sharing about your mom and that inspiration. Thank um, you. And, and the book is always like, it's always nice to have the, the extra knowledge for, for people to look up, up as well. Denise, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I wish you Thank like you. nothing but the best and, and your strength is truly inspirational. So thank you for this. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. And I wish the best for you and your journey as well. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, huh? What this girl's gone through, seriously crazy. This was a chat I know I will go back to again and again. And if you're feeling inspired by these stories too, don't forget to share them. It helps support the show and the community out there too. You can print screen and tag me on social media, and you can also copy the link and send it privately to your TTC friends and also anyone that might need to hear a story of strength and resilience. Her spirit is captivating, her remaining positive and believing she will realize her dream will give anyone the strength they need to carry on with whatever they're going through in their life. I am proud to now call Denise a friend and follow her on this journey. And I wish you all a great week and I'll see you next Tuesday. This podcast wouldn't be up and running if it wasn't for the help of a few very special people. You can find my special thanks to them all at myfertilityjourney.ca. And if you want to keep in touch, find me on Instagram on at myfertilityjourney.ca. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave a review to support the show, and share it with anyone you think might benefit from it. Love you all, and I'll see you soon.